You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. This is the September Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Hello. I am good. I feel like we haven't kind of simultaneously haven't talked in a long time and then kind of also sad because this is the first Journal Club I've had in a while that's not in front of a live studio audience. I know, I know. Simulcast has been out and about at Don't Forget the Bubbles, uh, which we have released, and also coming up are some podcasts from Resus Toronto, which was a great experience, and there'll be more coming from Simulcast on that. So look at both the website and listen to our podcasts. But we're here with Journal Club Ben, and uh, we're going to have some rigorous analysis of some great simulation literature. So why don't you kick us off talking about the paper of the month and some of the discussion that our uh, bloggers had about it? Yeah, absolutely. So this month we looked at a foundational paper called Co-Debriefing for Simulation-Based Education, and it's by Cheng et al., and it was published in 2015 in Simulation in Healthcare. Um, And I think it is really very much a foundational paper that's important to read pretty early in your debriefing career. And it's about how do we debrief better with another person, essentially. Um, So Cheng and uh, et al, I guess, would identify a number of reasons that co-debriefing doesn't really always go perfectly. And they outline a few things that would be familiar to a lot of us, like mismatch agendas with your co-debriefer, not necessarily using the expertise optimally, uh, debriefers only talking to a single professional group or one particular debriefer hijacking or dominating the conversation. And after going through a few of those barriers as to why it doesn't always work as perfectly as we like, they outline two specific strategies for co-debriefing and they call those follow the leader and define, divide and conquer. And so follow the leader is kind of like a lead debriefer and a wingman So one person's kind of mainly running the conversation and the other person is keeping more of an eye out for uh, audience engagement, uh, making sure that all of the group is being involved and just kind of being that wingman who who has your back but doesn't steal the show. And then they outline divide and conquer, which is sort of more like a relay race. You just um, take turns leading certain topics in the conversation so that the person who's owning that conversation is sort of a little more clearly defined. After that, they talk about a couple of other strategies, both preemptive and after the fact, that can help you get on better and sort of forge a more synchronous relationship with your debriefer. Uh, They talk about having a pre-established agreement on learning objectives and assigning roles, uh, having a good pre-brief huddle. And I think uh, for a number of us, one of the most important takeaway tips from that paper is this concept of open negotiation, or as some people will call it, above the table negotiation, which is essentially encouraging debriefers to really feel free to communicate transparently with their co-debriefer in front of other learners, um, which is something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to most of us. And I'd have to say for me, you know, useful in debriefing, but also very much in my uh, the rest of my clinical practice as well. Would that be fair to say for you as well, Vic? Absolutely. I 
like that you pointed that one out because for me that has been one of the things that I've changed over the last two or three years is being prepared to say in front of the learners, uh, what will we do now? Let's go make a plan to go forwards. And uh, having seen it in practice, I found it easy to read about in the paper. And uh, so I, I think that is one of the challenges with this is trying to translate what we see on a piece of paper to actually thinking about the examples in practice. And we've said that about a few of our papers as read as well, I think. Yeah, I think that's a consistent theme and, and maybe it's a, a bit of an issue with the medium of journal writing in some ways. I think um, you've, you've talked about utilizing um, a lot more video, for example, to give us some some live examples of a lot of this stuff, which I think would be really useful. Yeah, I think some multimedia examples you could link to of watching a sort of even just a couple of minutes of an example of that would be great. And uh, I'm hoping journals increasingly enable that as they often do have online supplementary material now. And I think this would be a good example of adding another dimension to the uh, written word in journals. Yeah, absolutely. So look, um, comments this month from the Journal Club bloggers uh, were really engaging. And I'd have to say one thing that made me extremely excited uh, was to have some some formal comments from the NYSIM Journal Club group. So uh, thank you to Daniel Legassi from NYSIM. And he organized essentially a live journal club in his uh, local service. And they put out the article um, in the weeks before uh, their meeting, uh, read our case study, had a discussion, and then they posted uh, the group's collective thoughts about it, which I was so pumped to see. Um, when we were, don't forget the bubbles, I think uh, somebody had mentioned maybe sometimes RCH Melbourne does that as well. So I'm really excited to see that uh, happening. I hope it's a useful resource for people. Yeah, I agree. And I would just encourage anyone out there, it's incredibly gratifying to us, but potentially save people work because Ben, you beautifully set up the case study but also with a few prompt questions and nominate an article that most people should uh, get their head around you're interested in the classics as well as some of the newer stuff and uh, and we would love to hear this kind of examples even if people want to pre-record any bit of audio as a summary of their top of their comments at the journal club that would be great well, that would be very cool uh, now I'm getting excited. So, <laughs> look, uh, uh, oh, it's kind of sad that that's true, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> own it. Own it, Ben. Own it. I'm going to grab it. In a nerd, in a nerd. Um, so, look, overall, I think uh, from the discussion, the article is very well regarded. It's considered foundational by many educators, and it's widely shared uh, with many stating that it's helped them in the past, and admittedly some of us acknowledging that maybe we sometimes use it as a weapon when we're uh, having conflict with other co-debriefers. Um, the themes of the discussion this month were pretty diverse, but the things that stuck out for me were that people really acknowledge that co-debriefing can be hard, that interprofessional and expertise hierarchies appear to be very frequent challenges for a lot of people, um, and that there's tension between consistency of debriefing styles and maintaining one's individual authenticity, which I thought was a very interesting point that I hadn't thought about. Agree. I think the uh, difficulty with managing consistency with individual style is is there in any kind of team, isn't it? And you have to decide what you're trading off and uh, – I think one of the challenges, particularly when you have clinicians come and join you in a debriefing team, is they haven't been through the journey that many of us have. And uh, often we get a little bit closed off to their contribution because we go, oh, my goodness, you're not following our framework or our structure. 
But uh, I think it's also a recognition for us to think about what co-debriefers might have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying it's not super fun to silently judge someone for a poorly formed AI question because, you know, who doesn't love that? But <laughs> um, I, I think that it can get a little bit too clicky sometimes, can't it? And I've certainly had conversations with um, fellow debriefers who find themselves getting really riled up if someone's not doing it the right way. And I think um, that can come from a really good place in terms of being concerned about your learner's experience. But uh, uh, too much militancy, you may be actually being more tribal or territorial than actually protecting anyone, I suspect. You're listening to Simulcast. So Derek Louie talked about that and he sort of raised this question of is it a problem for us to have different styles or should we have a really consistent and unified approach to the way we run Sim? And is transfer of knowledge invariably worsened when styles or message diverge? I'd certainly say my perspective would be no. Anne Mullen came along, which I was very appreciative of, and she said, look, as long as you're using sound practices, I think not. And it's really important that we bring our authentic voice to debriefing. And I think that's a fair call. Um, a lot of people, including Namat, sort of talked about the complexities of co-debriefing and that you can often think it's going to be easier because you've got a buddy to come along with you, but actually it gets quite complex. Um, she argues that it's harder and more complex than solo debriefing and it requires being extremely good at reading facial expressions and body language of a co-debriefer and to know when to pick up the baton and when to hand it back again without disrupting the flow of the session. And the NY Sim Group identified some very specific challenges they've experienced in the past, including mismatched agendas, content content experts who went down a rabbit hole, or when a co-debriefer is clearly making learners uncomfortable. And Komal Bajaz actually argued that co-debriefing is really a separate and very specific skill that needs to be specifically taught, which I think is a very fair point. The other thing that came up quite frequently is this uh, the issue of hierarchy in debriefing and that interprofessional and expertise hierarchies appear to be really frequent challenges. So Susan Ellen, Ella described a particularly confronting debrief she had where her colleague actually physically separated participants by profession. Um, and she wasn't the only one who reported challenges with those kind of imbalances in debriefing. You made a good point, Vic, yourself about sort of when content experts participate as debriefers without training in group or debriefing process and yet assume or claim a superior place as a result of content expertise, that that can be particularly challenging or a perceived threat by other debriefers. Um, but I think overall as a group, we really acknowledged, however, that the benefits from accessing expert knowledge likely outweighed the challenges in coordinating that conversation and that there are strategies that this paper outlines that can be helpful in that. You're listening to Simulcast. So I might move on to uh, Gabe Reedy's expert response. You could probably introduce Gabe better than I could, though. You know him pretty well. Uh, sure, yeah. So Gabe Reedy hails from the UK, uh, psychologist by training, expert debriefer and all things educational psychology as well. Uh, one of the co-conveners at CSAM uh, and I had some chats to him there, uh, this, uh, the European Society for Simulation and Medicine and works at the Sales Centre in London. And I think maybe the only reason he agreed to do this this month is that I once gave him a ride home when he didn't know who I was. <laughs> teaching at a course in Brisbane. So uh, things pay off. Generosity pays off. Um, so Gabe gave us a, an expert commentary that's 
clearly just rich with experience. And he argues again that we think code debriefing is easy because it shares the load with somebody else and takes the pressure off. But he takes the stance that it's in many ways more complex and it comes with more risk, but also the potential for a more enriching learning experience. He offers a slightly different model for debriefing structure based on uh, one of his papers, the Diamond Debrief, and he describes that in his center, for the sake of clarity, each debriefer takes ownership of a particular phase in order to prevent miscommunication. He then highlights the importance of those pre- and post-debriefing huddles, both from a peer feedback perspective, but also from a synchronization perspective. And then he closes by highlighting the importance of open negotiation, or as he puts it, above-the-table negotiation. And I'm just going to quote him here. It's a little bit long, but I really liked it. And he says, look, at open negotiation models for our learners a way of interacting that we want them to adopt with colleagues, patients, and carers. Open negotiation models that we treat our co-debriefer as a colleague and an equal, and that the work of facilitating the debriefing together is important enough to take seriously and discuss explicitly. It models that it's appropriate and valuable to be explicit about our intentions, to be professionally and courteously challenge each other, and to admit when we get confused or lose situational awareness, to ask for help, and to ask if our colleagues need help. It models that complex and difficult situations like simulation debriefing and indeed like patient care benefit tremendously from an open and explicit approach to communicating and that by working together effectively, we can create a rich and valuable learning experience. I love that, Claude. I love that too. Yes, yes. It's kind of telling us to name the dynamic everywhere. And it's interesting. I was just debriefing today with a group of mental health staff who were being trained to be essentially first responders to their colleagues who had suffered a distressing episode at work. And uh, we actually talked about having that open negotiation with that person about what kind of help they needed at that time and what the boundaries were around the conversation. And I thought it's just another example of exactly this being explicit in your conversations about where it's going, why it's going and how to get it there. Yeah, it's one of my favorite debriefing hacks for life. I guess those things that just translate into every other conversational thing that you do that help so much. You're listening to Simulcast. Shall we move on to the papers? Why don't we do that, Ben? Uh, but thank you. That's a, I think a, I'd just sort of say it is a great read. It's probably required for anyone who wants to do debriefing, not because it's got all the answers, but because it tells you a lot about what to think about rather than what to think. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club. Let's get on to our papers of the month. Now, Ben, did you work out the theme between them? So, so for those that don't know, Vic often chooses a theme with the three papers and then I'm looking at them in my Dropbox folder and trying to work out how she's chosen or what specific theme it was. And I guess I think there's a meta theme, which is I want to ask you, is electronic medical records currently migrating into your hospital? <laughs> they certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that was the theme that I guessed, but I'm not sure if You're that's the actual me. theme that connected because I couldn't put the second. There was there were two electronic medical records papers, and then yes. there was one that wasn't wasn't. I couldn't quite connect the ECMO paper. Yes, the other one is about ECMO, which we'll start with. And you're right. So I, there is a theme, and my theme is that 
when cha- when there are changes in our clinical practice, how this does and should, I believe, translate to trends in what we simulate about and how we simulate it. All right, well, let's start the first one. So this one is about ECMO simulation. So the title of the paper is Construction of a Reusable High-Fidelity Model for Simulation of Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. So this is in BMJ Stell, September. Uh, September 2018 by Yo uh, and colleagues um, from Anesthetics in London. And just to give a little bit of a background, a lot of people I know are getting involved in trying to simulate ECMO. So I definitely want to steer clear of any expertise in ECMO because I don't have it, but to give a very, very uh, broad description of what it is, essentially ECMO is a little bit from a simulation point of view of a plumbing exercise because the aim is to, uh, or the aim of ECMO is essentially to get blood out of a patient's body and back in after putting it through a machine to get oxygenated because the heart and lungs that would normally do that in the body aren't working. So in particular, there's a growing trend for patients in cardiac arrest to be put on ECMO while their resuscitation continues. And from a simulation point of view, there's a physical challenge of cannulating the large vessels in the groin during CPR to be able to activate this ECMO process. What do you think, Ben? Have I simplified that to the point of ridiculous? I think you made me start to understand ECMO, so I think you're on to a winner. (laughs) All right, so this article is really a description of a process of building a bespoke mannequin in order to achieve the challenges that they want for the providers in practicing delivery of this uh, ECMO CPR. So previously, we've had mannequins that were pretty good at getting intubated and ventilated and having CPR performed on them. And we've also had some dedicated mannequins that have been built to practice this plumbing exercise and putting on an ECMO machine and practicing the process of ECMO. But it seems it's been hard to combine the two together. So this paper really gives a description of how they built one that did. And uh, there's some really just quite a bit of detail, but essentially they took an old mannequin, a uh, version one lateral sim man, and they've got some pictures of this, and uh, stripped it back a little bit and then added a deal of silicon tubing, which would simulate the great vessels, uh, in particular the femoral artery and vein that they use for the process of the um, ECMO. Uh, and they've got some lovely pictures of how they did that. And to be honest, it doesn't look that hard. And I think if you had a decent bit of um, kit and you had some uh, drills and tape and most of the things that our simulation coordinators are particularly good at, you could probably replicate this process fairly easily. And they don't seek to say it's the best way or the only way. They just describe what they did with it. They ran quite a prolonged out-of-hospital cardiac arrest simulation, which involved ongoing resuscitation and putting this patient on ECMO. And they described a couple of the drawbacks of things they couldn't do. So for instance, in order to insert the lines into these patients, you would normally use an ultrasound to identify where the vessels were. And obviously this not being quite the echo texture of real tissues, they weren't able to, for instance, use an ultrasound. So they were they identified some of the things that they found in the drawbacks in a, uh, I guess, just descriptive way without going through a comprehensive evaluation process. So I think my take home from this paper is just sometimes it's good to share these processes. I think increasingly people 
do build mannequins, as it were, deliberately for a particular purpose. And this is one way of avoiding huge costs in manufacturers having to develop a mannequin that might only have a very focused use that then they can use again. So um, I don't think it needed to be anything more than what it was, but I thought it was a lovely description for people who might be thinking about how they could do the same themselves. What did you think, Ben? Uh, Yeah, I thought it was a cool use of publication to foster a simulation community of practice. And I really like those sort of idea sharing papers that don't have to be um, sort of from a research perspective massive, but are just actually going to potentially change local practice at the coalface. All right. Well, moving on to the next paper. So the next two are about electronic uh, health records and in particular how they might be used in simulation and I guess use simulation to train in their use. So uh, the first paper is from Simulation in Healthcare uh, August this year, so just out, and the title of the paper is Electronic Health Records in Simulation Education, Literature Review and Synthesis. So this is by Wilbanks and a group from uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham, um, including Chad Epps, who we've also had at Simulcast before. And really, they set us up with some things that are pretty well known to many of us who are going through or have been through transitions to electronic health records. You know, these are a reality uh, today, and they quote a number there that in 2014, 75% of US hospitals had at least some form of electronic health record, and I think that number would be even higher in 2018 in Australia. And again, unsurprisingly, it actually requires skill to use electronic health records effectively and efficiently. So unsurprisingly, they postulate that maybe it'd be good to train in particular healthcare students in their use um, in both SIM and indeed other education programs. And so they embarked on a literature review, which I guess importantly was limited only to educational electronic health records. So this was looking at students only, um, which is, so it didn't look at existing healthcare staff, which is more the pain that uh, you and I um, have been going through. Ben, I imagine you've had this experience yourself. Um, yeah, a couple of times. I'm actually in a hospital that doesn't, so we we still use EDIS, so we, we do type our notes, but it's not sort of a formal electronic record program, but it it's coming very soon. And I'm very sad that... Uh, because I love that one thing I love about my hospital is I can write my pathology label and just sign it. It takes me two seconds and it's gone. You should probably cut this out because this is me rambling, but I'm a bit nervous, <laughs> bit nervous no. about the future. No, me too, me too. And I think you and I are not alone and you don't need to be too much of a dinosaur to fear the electronic health records when you look at some of the statistics about what it does to productivity initially and I guess some of the impact that it has on our face time with patients. But what did they do in this study? So they essentially did a uh, literature review. Their search was conducted in December 2016 and they looked for uh, a combination of either electronic health record and simulation or electronic medical record and simulation. They found over 1,500 articles, uh, but only 15 met their criteria, largely because, as I said, they restricted this to health professional students, not uh, those of us already in practice. And the results of that, when you look at their list of 15 articles, um, they're pretty diverse. Various professions, pharmacy, medicine, nursing, sometimes mixed. Various study designs, so quite a few case studies. Some of them are 
pre- and post-test surveys, some of them descriptive studies, uh, and some of them involved commercially used um, electronic health records, and some of them actually involved some that were self-designed specifically for the student's educational process. So quite a heterogeneous group of articles. And I think the sort of take-home before I get to their themes really is that looking at those articles is probably useful if you're thinking about embarking on this, and I would recommend it to people. Uh, So although there were no great surprises, I think there's a really nice synthesis of the work that people have done at looking how do you practically embed an electronic health record in your educational process. So uh, they did come up with five themes. Again, as I said, not necessarily surprising, but at the same time uh, informative. So they looked at, unsurprisingly, this is an important thing to do. Uh, And there is some support in those articles that students who are engaged in using an electronic health record in their training are better prepared. They looked at some of the properties of the ideal electronic uh, educational health record. And Interestingly, there are some features that are different to the ideal clinical electronic health record. And in particular, one of the things that came up for me was they really wanted an electronic health record in education that you could monitor how in detail it was because otherwise you just got too much cognitive load for these students. So you've got this bit of a trade-off between having the real record that we might use in clinical practice with something you could actually cope with in a simulation. And I think that's probably an important um, transition process for people. And I thought that probably meant that many of the commercially available ones weren't necessarily appropriate and why people were driven to try and uh, develop their own. So they looked a little bit at the benefits and disadvantages and looked at the kind of competencies that people were really learning with this. And uh, for instance, one of them being learning how to coordinate the data entry with the consultation. And I know that this is probably much more common, say, in general practice and uh, other areas where people literally uh, have to type in their notes as they're talking to the patient and how to navigate that interface um, while still maintaining some connection with the patient and body language is a big challenge. Uh, Not surprisingly, when they looked at facilitators and barriers for implementing these the attitude and approach and knowledge and skills of faculty was critical. And then they describe in the table some best practices for incorporating educational uh, electronic health records. And interestingly, they say start small, go incremental, and just really think a lot about this cognitive burden issue. So I've, I've kind of glossed over a lot of the detail there, but I think, again, Ben, for me, this is a lot about if you're thinking about doing this, and I think we probably should be, have a look at what some other people have done and uh, learn a couple of the easy lessons. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, a good tip. And I think um, it is a hard paper to summarize because there were, were a lot of diverse findings. I did really like the way they assembled kind of a snapshot of a lot of the papers that they looked at in one of their tables. And it was quite a quick, efficient read. And you could kind of get a feel for what was out there and then work out what you want to read more about. I think it's an interesting kind of I was a bit surprised that they were talking about a separate electronic health record that's purely educational as opposed to a current hospital one because I guess instinctively you think about half of the work being trying to, you know, get efficient at something so that when you're on the floor it's, you know, not such a cognitive burden and not taking up so much time when you're trying to focus on the patient. Um, And there's, there's a real conflict 
of permanence, I guess, in the educational records specifically are just so designed to not allow you to delete anything ever, um, which um, is in terms of in situ stuff, quite a big barrier to using it for our simulations because you just can't delete it very easily. So it's an interesting problem in functional task alignment, I guess. Yeah. Interestingly, this brought back um, an ac- the actual experience I'd had back in 2014 with the medical students where I came to the Gold Coast, they were using an electronic health record, and I thought, oh, this is terrible that we don't train the students in it. And I went through the same process of looking at Cerna, who hosted our current hospital medical record and looked at Queensland Health and I thought, you know, this isn't going to be a great bunch of people to work with to create a quick and nimble thing for our students to use. And so I actually embarked on the process of creating our own and we ended up building an app um, and that's how we use our virtual hospital now, which has a sort of case-based learning approach using essentially uh, virtual simulation. And although that was a painful process, I still think Probably there was something in that in terms of people still getting used to the idea of navigating an interface, albeit a much more user-friendly one than the one we use at the hospital. So I think some of these same questions came up for me and we ended up going with our own bespoke process, which was uh, labour-intensive to develop, but I'm ultimately glad that we did that because I think if we tried to work with our current hospital-based one, we would have had all kinds of functionality that would have been unnecessary and it would have been expensive and difficult to do. So I can see why they sort of, I can see how they identified this issue. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess there's so much intensive learning in the med school years, just trying to learn how to be a doctor, let alone trying to learn how to document how you're being a doctor in a complex system. (laughs) So having something simpler to start with is a good idea. Yeah. All right, well, moving on to the third paper, really this is probably an example of one of the kind of uh, papers that might appear in this literature review, would they, to review it. Uh, so this paper is also from BMJ Stell from August 2018, and it's called Assessing Pharmacy Students' Preferences with Implementing Electronic Medical Records into the Pharmacy Curriculum. And this is by Sarag Bolas and colleagues from the University of South Florida uh, in Tampa, Florida. And uh, this is a sort of case study of a pharmacy student uh, institution where they've sought to integrate the EMR processes into their learning. And this was a, again, they start with a similar sort of introductory comments about how important this is. And I'll quote their objective was to assess students' familiarity with the components and functionalities of electronic medical records and their confidence levels with it before and after several simulation-based learning activities integrated within the curriculum. So they really started out with the idea of we need to integrate this somehow. And um, it's hard to see exactly what they do, but they essentially integrated this particularly into their second and third years of their course. And from what I can tell in their second year, they got them to practice entering some data into an electronic medical record. And then in their third year, they sort of extended that a little bit and they both got people to read data from an electronic health record, then participate in a simulation, and then again enter data into the electronic health record to sort of expand it a bit. And the way they evaluated this was to uh, ask people to complete surveys both pre and post, so at beginning and end of their year two and their year three. 
uh, and they used a uh, survey that was, as they describe, adapted from previous literature. So um, had some, uh, I guess, previous validation. And again, the sort of results are fairly, they're not documented in great detail, but the way they describe it is that uh, most of their Year three students agreed or strongly agreed they could summarise EMR information, efficiently find information and felt comfortable using an EMR. So it's not sort of strongly um, influential, but it was more positive than it was negative. I think we can definitely say that. They found it very interesting that despite that, uh, the students would have rather had a paper medical record, which was disappointing to them since they were millennials. And uh, as with many people. I've written down the exact same quote. It stood out, stood out to me as well. Yeah, oh, no. these millennials, not like something electronic. What's going on? Yeah. I think what we can say is millennials love the ability to swipe left and right, and some of them are right into technology, but certainly not all of them. Well, is is that not also an ind- indication on the technology that maybe we like yeah. efficiency and sort of speed, and it, you, that doesn't mean you necessarily like everything electronic if you've got a... Uh, faster, easier format, like a piece of paper. Yeah, I don't know. You see, I think you're at least a Gen Y, aren't you, if not a millennial? Um, that, yeah, us no. old Gen Xs. 1980. Uh, I'm yeah. clinging to X. Anyway, I think, once again, it's a it's a good example of people uh, thinking about how they integrate this. And I think it's a it probably is an important thing to do, but as they happily say, I don't think we know yet exactly the right way to do it, but integration probably is the key and thinking about that trade-off between aligning with the tasks we'll be doing as uh, fully-fledged practitioners while at the same time making it not too much that it overwhelms anything else that's in the simulation other than using the electronic health record uh, is the balance. But, um, yeah, so I think this was just a nice example of the of the previous comprehensive literature review. Yeah, I'd have to say I, from a critique perspective, though, I did find you, you mentioned, you, you said the phrase, it's hard to see exactly what they do. And I'd have to say I had trouble with this paper interpreting exactly what their intervention was. There, there wasn't a lot of detail there. And I also found it hard to interpret what the findings of the survey were beyond they kind of thought they got a bit better. Um, and I, I was surprised because I would have thought if you were implementing an electronic medical record kind of intervention that they were making a record in, you could potentially objectively assess that rather than asking them whether they thought they got better. Um, So I was a little bit disappointed from that perspective. Yeah, and you raise a good point because one of the promises of these electronic health records is the opportunity to gather more data and get more granular about our performance. Uh, And so you're right, it hasn't kind of captured that despite the fact that they were actually using uh, some of these standard commercially available systems. And so, um, as you say, they, particularly since they used the word assessing, uh, because they were just assessing preferences, whereas it might have been good to assess their actual performance on it. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So a few thoughts on electronic health records, a little bit on ECMO. Um, you better tell us what's coming up in October for our next paper, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I th- I'd have to say um, I think over the sort of last couple of years with Journal Club, I've been aiming to get some of the foundational papers covered so that if you looked back and 
um, sort of read through our annual summaries and stuff if you, you wanted to give that to your fellow and whatnot, that you'd have a pretty good overview of some of the, the foundational literature. So I feel like we're getting to a, a point where we can start exploring a little bit more about of the modern stuff that's coming out. So uh, I want to spend the next couple of months talking about curriculum design a little bit and thinking about the way that we're teaching what we're teaching, not necessarily just through SIM. And so we're going to look at a paper by Cheng et al. that was published very recently, I think in August 2018, uh, in Circulation. And it's uh, a scientific statement from the American Heart Association um, entitled uh, Resuscitation Education Science, Educational Strategies to Improve Outcomes from Cardiac Arrest. And it's a pretty cool um, big paper summarizing a lot of the evidence for the educational interventions that are currently seen to work when it comes to teaching people um, CPR and cardiac arrest intervention. So I'm really looking forward to reading that with, an, with the frame of simulation education and what have we brought to the table and what are we still lagging behind in. Oh, I'm so glad you did that. This was actually one of the papers I picked for, we did a paper review at the recent recess at the Harbour Conference, and this was one of mine, because I do think there's lots of really practical stuff in here. So we'll look forward to the discussion. So just remind people, that's www.simulationpodcast.com. Just pop onto our webpage, uh, read the case study, read the paper, and tell us what you think. Uh, and on that note, Ben, happy second birthday. I know, yeah, it's been uh, two years. It's crazy, right? So <laughs> it's been such a lovely journey with you, Vic. It has been. And so we're going to be reading the uh, second year in review soon? Yes, as soon as I get my ass into gear. <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it will be published pretty soon, I think. We're just putting well, it together at the moment. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to promoting that. We'll um, be putting it out as an ebook again. And uh, I think Ben's been quite modest there. I think this really is a lovely compendium of papers for uh, uh, anyone who wants to get a really good handle on some of the key uh, pieces of literature. Or just read a good romance. Uh, that too, yeah. <laughs> we can't wait. Awesome. Okay. Well, All right, Ben. Well, lovely to chat. Look forward to seeing you uh, in a month's time. All right. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club.